This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Albania in the 80s was the last Stalinist country in Europe. It was difficult to visit and almost impossible to leave. It was a place of poverty and queues, political executions and secret police. To my guest today, however, the author of Free, a deeply affecting and thought-provoking personal account of those years and the years that followed the toppling of the communist regime in Albania, it was simply home. Welcome to the bunker, Leah Uppi. Thank you for having me. Leah, the book begins with you running through the streets of Dures, which is, I think, where you grew up during the 1990 student protests, which turned into riots, to a bronze statue of Stalin that you hugged for comfort. Change was coming into the young you. This was terrifying. Give us a flavor of what it was like to live through that period. It was a period of profound change, as everywhere in Europe in that period, with the difference that in Albania the change came rather late, and also when people thought it was almost impossible to happen. Mm. The reason was that Albania was isolated from, uh, obviously, the, the capitalist West, but it was also isolated from the Soviet East. It had left the Warsaw Pact in uh, 1968 in protest of the invasion of Czechoslovakia. It mm. had had a brief alliance with China after that. And then at some point when China also decided to move away from the Cultural Revolution and from Maoism and to turn to take a more reformist turn, Albania was also um, broke relations with China and decided to be completely isolated. And so it had this model of autarkic communism, which to the Albanian nation leadership was, this is how communism was supposed to be. It was supposed to be the communism of a small, proud country, which was leading by example all the other oppressed people of the world who could look up to this morally very uh, stark and not corrupt type of socialism. You talk about how at that time completely you believed that in the Stalinist state that was Albania at the time, you felt free. Your father described the students as protesters, but the young you insisted they were hooligans. At what point did you begin to shift into the awareness that maybe there were other kinds of freedom that this change could make possible? It was actually only when the um, leadership of the Albanian Labour Party, the former Communist Party, declared on television that we would be a politically pluralistic country 
that I realized that, you know, there was a fundamental change happening in the country. And the reason I realized this was that the leader of the party was on television announcing this change. (laughs) My problem at the time was that I was equally subject to the influence of the family and of the state via the school system and the education system. And because my family never really questioned the authority of the state via the school system, it was, uh, for me, difficult to see who was right and who was wrong. There was one narrative which was supported at home from what I could see from my point of view, and then, of course, the school narrative and the state narrative. So it's only when the leadership itself announced the change that I thought, okay, maybe there is a problem and, and maybe this change is responding to a problem because if they themselves are saying it, then it must be true. And it's exactly those sort of different notions of freedom that you go into examining your book. I have to say, I read it twice in the last week because it's sort of two books in one. Um, the, the first time I read it, I was quite engrossed with your sort of personal narrative, your memoir of what was going on. And it was only on the second reading that I was aware there's a, there was a sub-layer of really political theory going through it. So you have your notion initially that in an authoritarian communist state, the equality that existed was a kind of freedom. Then you have your mother's notion that freedom was uh, sort of not being told what to do, I guess. You have your father's notion that freedom is the existence of opportunity. And most interesting for me, I think, your grandmother's, your ninny's idea that freedom is an internal quality, a, a sort of the moral compass to choose right from wrong. Have you reconciled these overlapping definitions as an adult into something new and yours, or did ultimately one of them win out? Yeah, I think I could say that one of them did win out, and this is the one that I am most attracted to, which is my grandmother's one. Um, It's true that, as you say, the larger philosophical theme that animates the book is this idea of freedom and an effort to explain what individual agency and responsibility look like when there are different social constraints and structures of power that inhibit um, individual agency. And the book really tries to explore how this yearning for freedom is at the heart of all the choices and the dilemmas faced by Mm. the different characters of the book and who encounter these dilemmas as they try to navigate these different political systems. My grandmother, the reason I am attracted to her definition and to her account is that it seems to me to have in it a sort of a philosophical idea of freedom, which is that we remain free for as long as we remain moral agents, and as long as we're able to make moral choices despite all the constraints, we are able to show that we've never become fully victims of the circumstances. Mm. And uh, to me, her life was in some ways representative of that. She was, uh, she came from a privileged family. She came from a kind of aristocratic family in the Ottoman Empire. And then she moves to Albania when her husband, who is himself a progressive, goes to prison. And then she's a single mother and she's condemned to forced labor. But she never either blames other people for her plight and never completely absolves them either. So she finds ways of of retaining her dignity in a way by asserting her will and making these moral decisions, even within what would seem like purely um, oppressive circumstances. And for me, that's very important because that moral compass and knowing that we have this moral freedom within us is, I think, what gives us the ground for then social critique, for then looking at the structures that surround us 
and giving us the, the way of criticizing these structures while also asserting the possibility that humans can always make a difference. That on the one hand, you know, we can see when structures fail us, but on the other hand, we mustn't just be victim of these structures. We have to believe that it's possible to change things always. Yeah, there, there's something almost Aristotelian about it, isn't there? That that true freedom is to not in many ways define yourself from the actions of other people and to remain internally consistent, to become a better person, you know, according to your code and, and that that's sort of true freedom. You also describe the monotony of growing up without being sort of bombarded by the external influences of consumerism in some ways, and how there was a, a sort of freedom in that as well. Do you, do you still think that? Do you, do you think that actually being bombarded with advertisements and products and constantly defining ourselves by how much we have and what we consume is a sort of lack of freedom? Yes, I would put it slightly different, though. I would say that I was, in some ways, in my childhood, also bombarded by a different kind of message, which was a political message. So we were bombarded by state ideology, by state propaganda about what our nation was about, you know, what freedom consisted of, how we should conceptualize our relationship to other countries. For me, what was interesting was that at some point, the advertising, the kind of market structure, all the, the merchandising that you described... All of these were presented to us in 1990 as models of freedom. Mm. And from my perspective, and as I sort of thought afterwards about these two different periods of my life, the communist period and the, the liberal period, to me, they were just different kinds of ideologies. So you would have a state slogan and a party slogan <laughs> before 1990. And then at some point, the state slogan was gone and it was replaced by a Coca-Cola advert. And to me, these were different forms of ideologies connected to two different ways in which two different social systems think about freedom. And I just couldn't see how one could be more liberating than the other. And I just, you know, so, so for me, this is what was interesting was the, was the symmetry between how different social systems present you with messages, which in some ways represent what they are. And, and they're both presented as liberating messages, but in some ways what's always required is a kind of critical perspective of the individuals who is able to, to stand above these, um, forces and to see and to assess whether this is really the case, whether they are really presented with the kind of freedom that they're pretended to be presented. Mm. To measure them against internal values like your Nini. To me, that was really important because I wanted through this history and, and by telling this story, I wanted to actually react to what I think has become a kind of dominant liberal or maybe even left liberal way of thinking about the end of the Cold War or sort of related ideas of um, the end of history, which is to think of the plight of countries or groups who don't share this straightforward liberal trajectory as places that need their help and that really need some kind of moral savior who can tell them, you know, what freedom is and who can mm. save them from their backwardness. And what I really wanted to show is that there is a kind of risk of paternalism in that way of thinking, which ends up perpetuating oppression rather than liberating people. And it's important to see that even within what one might think from the outside, is the most oppressive society on earth, there is always, even within that society, margins of individual reflection and possibilities of internal emancipation and that mm. it's important to take into account of these forces. And on that exactly, so in 19, from 1991, I should say, a, a huge number of Albanian economic migrants crossed over to my native Greece. 
And, you know, I have grown up with people from exactly your background. And I've seen how when they first arrived in Greece, they really embraced this model of capitalism with both hands. But what's been interesting is that during the economic crisis in Greece in the 2010s, many began to develop a sort of romanticism for the communism that was, a sort of, at least we didn't go without the basics view of the past. Do you think in capitalist democracies we mistake the abundance of choice for real freedom? You know, I I think you call it the ideological delusion at some point. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it is, a, it, it is an abundance of choice, but more importantly, I think it's only an abundance of choice for some categories of people. And so what I think uh, the, the delusion really consists in thinking that there is freedom of choice available for everyone simply because there are, for example, possibilities of choosing which color of jeans to buy in the market or, you know, where to go where there's an abstract possibility of choosing where to go on holiday or there is uh, all these sort of quantitative decisions that need to be made, which people equivocate for real freedom, when in fact that freedom is, first of all, very constrained, because even within advanced capitalist democracies, there are huge numbers of people that are disenfranchised. But more importantly, I think if you lack uh, meaningful exercises of freedom of choice, then you also lack real freedom. So let me give you an example. It's one thing to say we all have you know, freedom of speech or uh, freedom of voicing political opinions but if you don't have the degree of access to education and if you don't have the tools to exercise your political rights then these political rights are deprived of meaning so they're just there but actually either they're not theoretical people don't you know they're alienated they don't go to vote or they there's different ways in which you can be alienated from the political system and that alienation means that there is a sort of substantive lack of freedom despite the propaganda around the fact that there is a lot of freedom and that this system offers you much more freedom than this other system. And that's why I think it's really important to recover this kind of moral compass that is able to enable individuals to assess these different systems and to see what kind of constraints and opportunities each of them makes available and to also think about alternatives that in some ways are able to to capitalize and to remedy on the mistakes of these systems and to learn from their successes in a way without being, you know, biased in terms of, oh, if this is socialist or uh, then we don't want it. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. You have ended up, I think it's fair to say, quite an influential academic. You have ended up a voice with a platform. You teach political theory at the LSE, and you're more 
theoretical texts, especially in modern Marxism, are considered quite groundbreaking. And yet there is in the book a sort of deliberate immediacy. It, I, it would be very easy for you to analyze what happened in Albania with the distance of an academic, but you make a conscious choice to look through the eyes of the child you were then. And also a sense that you started intending to do the former, but the book somehow sucked you in, <laughs> you know, that you were sucked in by your own story. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, it's true. This was initially going to be a book about the overlaps in the ideas of freedom in the socialist and in the liberal traditions. And I have long thought that freedom is a concept that none of these traditions can fully appropriate, that there is a sort of mutually productive exchange that happens when you consider both of them. And then you think of, let's say, socialist critiques of liberalism as efforts to substantiate accounts of freedom that you also find in the liberal tradition. But then, uh, as I explain in the book, first of all, when I started writing from a very abstract perspective about the kind of the limitations of the socialism that I had lived and the liberalism that I had lived, I realized that some people would have said to me, well, why do you keep thinking about socialism and the liberalism that you live? None of these <laughs> socialism and liberalism as they should be. But then it, I just realized, you know, this is how we always encounter ideas. We never encounter them in the kind of perfect form in which they are presented in the text. They're, we always encounter them in a messy form, in a contradictory form, slightly dirty in real life. And it was at that point that I decided that I wanted to write a book on freedom, but I didn't want to write it in a paternalistic way because I thought that, you know, if you're going to write about freedom, then you have to be honest about, you know, what freedom is. And if you are going to be the, the one who paternalizes the reader, then in a way the effort kind of loses its meaning. So it was a deliberate choice to try and stand back, even though it was a memoir, to stand back as much as possible from, you know, my academic self and to just let the characters speak and tell their stories and give their accounts of freedom. And also, hopefully, to let the reader continue the kind of conversation with the book, even after the book was finished and even after the author is no longer there, to just kind of keep meditating about these ideas and have a sort of dialogue that continues. So that was very much a kind of the deliberate effort. And it's very difficult because, obviously, if you're an academic, the tendency is always to try and, uh, and especially if you're doing philosophy and political theory, the tendency is always to, you know, lecture people on what the right idea is and what the right theories are and why they're the right theories. So it was sort of difficult, but for me also rewarding in a way to just be able to stand back and, and yeah, let these lives live themselves on the page in a way. It's also fair to say, I think, that your own politics are on the left. And you describe a sort of nagging suspicion that some of your family considers that a betrayal of the persecution they suffered, as if socialism always leads to authoritarianism. Do they have a point? Is the age-old critique of socialism as a marvelous idea that just doesn't work? Does that have some validity? Yeah, I think for, from the point of view of that generation, perhaps, because these are generations whose lives were shaped by a kind of socialist system that failed, but then if you move to the next generation, which is my generation, and you realize that we've spent basically half of our lives under one system and half of our lives under another system, and you realize that both of these systems have failed in different ways, none of them has actually delivered the values that they promised to deliver, then what you end up with is an effort to think about, okay, what do they promise and how could one reconcile these promises and how can one still think about systemic change in a way that, in, in a way I think that recovers the sort of utopian streak of those movements of 1989-1990 in Eastern Europe, where people thought that they were fighting against socialism, 
but they weren't fighting it in the name of, you know, market capitalism or in the, in, in the name of this sort of mm, impoverished mm. idea of freedom that we ended up with. So there was a real yearning for freedom. And I think of my book as actually taking forward that yearning from freedom of these generations precisely. And in a way that also is able to criticize what we got instead when the end of the Cold War. And so as an, an effort to basically show them that we are, look, we're on the same page here. We all want freedom. The question is that this system that you lived under failed you in many ways, but this other system that I grew up under also failed me in many ways. And many people in my generation, my friends and so on, the book has many stories of people of my age that would have had entirely different lives if the system hadn't changed. And, and some of these lives would have actually been better than what had ended up as a result of the change. And so it's this effort to tell their stories as well, which I think motivated me to to have this dialogue also with those members of my family that thought of this as a kind of betrayal or as sort of weird and scandalous that I would be a socialist even after so many years of my family being persecuted under socialism. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and I have to say, it's very refreshing to have a, a Western lefty, which you are now, not have a romantic idea about um, how socialism worked back there, but also not shrink away from the idea of socialism because of the the trauma uh, suffered in your country. You wrote a couple of years ago that democracy can be asphyxiated by the conflicts that it sets free. Is this what we're seeing at the moment in many Western mature democracies, let's call them, that the division we have at the moment, the culture wars, the, the polarization of everything, it's not an extraneous threat but it's an inherent feature of democracies that fail to address inequality. Yes, I would say so. And I would say that it's the symptom of a kind of representative failure of these systems, which go under the name of democracy and that promise to give you freedom, but that in fact don't deliver either real democracy or real freedom. Because I think to live in a real democracy means to have a real substantive say in the laws that you make. And yet the societies that we live under are so pervaded by asymmetries of power, in economic inequalities, stereotypes, discriminations of various kinds, that mm. it's very hard to say that all those who are subject to these systems have an equal say in the laws that they end up authorizing, even though they do authorize these laws. You know, we hold elections regularly. We have representatives that claim to speak in our names and so on. And yet these voices are not being heard. So I think the pathologies that you were describing are to some extent a kind of cry of despair in the face of this inability of the system to present and to represent a whole category of people. And on the other hand, they're also a signal that there are no constructive alternatives and there's no sophisticated efforts on the side of progressives to actually articulate a, a constructive alternative that is able to draw in this sort of marginalized public. So, yeah, so I would say that it's a symptom of the crisis of democracy but not so much of the crisis of democracy, or at least only of democracy if we define what we have by democracy. But I would say what we have is not really democracy. It's a sort of liberal representative system that actually falls short of the degree uh, of representation that we would need for it to be called a democracy. You have also expressed some frustration with the left for being unable to form meaningful alliances, both within a domestic setting and internationally, while the right tends to coalesce around 
sort of one, uh, you know, candidate that has the, the capacity of being successful. What do you think, is there something that can unlock this constant infighting within the left? Yes, I think two things, really. The first one is to, in a way, be clearer about what the left is about as a project ideologically. And I think it should be clear that the left is a transnational project. So you can't be left-wing while remaining in a very narrowly nationalistic logic because, you know, the diagnosis of the problems that we face is transnational diagnosis. The crisis is a global crisis. The tools that we come up with, the concepts that we use in uh, diagnosis and articulating this crisis are also um, universal concepts. And so it seems to me that the left is kind of wedded to this national electoral logic which is a loss for it because the left can only work if it works transnationally, if it coordinates transnationally, if it comes up with projects that are transnational and so on. And the other problem I have, the the, the second question I have is that there's always a sort of choice in the left between, you know, are you a reformist or are you a revolutionary? Are you in favor of the system or against the system? Are you someone, you know, who is violent and wants to go on the streets or are you someone that is working with, uh, with existing institutions? And I think that's also a false choice because I believe that, when you're thinking about systemic change, what you're interested in is to see a fundamental change in the content of the laws. But the way in which this change happened doesn't really matter. You know, it's not about, you know, are you violent or are you peaceful? Do you like being on the streets or do you like being inside parliament? It's more about seeing a substantive change in the justice system, in the political system, in the representative system, and then adopting whatever strategy works to take you to the goal that you, um, you want to achieve. And so I think, again, we're kind of the left is trapped in this logic of, you know, reformism versus revolution, when in fact, we don't need to make a choice. And we can be much more contextual and pragmatic, depending on, you know, what works on the ground, what alliances are possible, who our interlocutor are, who are the audiences, and so on. So again, I think there's these two false choices. One is nationalism, internationalism, and the other one is reform and revolution. And if we only we could work out these dilemmas, then I think we would be much, much clearer ground. Oh, Leah, we're out of time. It has been such a a, a pleasure picking your brain. Thank you so much um, for your time and for your wonderful book. Thank you for having me. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. You start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And you can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Let me leave you with the words of Leah Uppi from her book Free, which is out today from a passage that really chimed with me. When you see a system change once, it's not that difficult to believe that it can change again. Fighting cynicism and political apathy turns into what some might call a moral duty. To me, it is much more a debt that I feel I owe to all the people of the past who sacrificed everything. This is Alexandreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>